Today, we conclude our sermon series on spiritual resolutions. Our guide during this series has been Paul's letters to the Christian community in the town of Philippi. Today's passage comes from the fourth and final chapter of Philippians, and it is chock full of good advice. So listen today for Paul's words of encouragement. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As for the things that you have learned and received and heard and noticed in me, do them, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me but had no opportunity to show it. Now that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share in my distress. May God bless these words to our understanding. The springs on the vinyl seats in the school bus were shot. We were traveling uphill a completely dirt road on the outskirts of a small dusty village in rural Nicaragua. I looked out the window. On the right-hand side, I saw children, dozens of children playing soccer in a soccer field. Well, I mean, they were playing soccer, but there was no net, there was no striping, just an opening that they made into a field. And on the other side of the bus, I could see women patting tortillas by hand and cooking them over an open flame. I turned to the man in the seat next to me. Isn't it amazing, I said. What, he asked. Isn't it amazing, I said, how content they seem to be when they have so little material wealth. I wish we could be that content in the United States. What he said next to startled me. He said, sometimes discontent is a good thing because it pushes us to reach for new goals. I have never forgotten his comment. It challenged me because, yes, sometimes our discontent is what challenges us to right the wrongs in society. Sometimes lack of contentment compels a person to be the first one in her village to finish high school and go to college. Paul writes to his friends, the ones he has fallen in love with in the town of Philippi, and he says, For I have learned to be content with whatever I have. Paul says he knows what it's like to have plenty and he knows what it's like to have very little. And he has learned to be content 
either way. In some ways, I think Paul, as a person, represents with his life and with his teachings the dialogue that I was having with my friend on the bus that day in Nicaragua. Paul is in jail, as he writes. He's broke, and yet he has the audacity to instruct his friends, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. He finds joy in the midst of what was surely a terrifying and frightening situation. Paul recalls, as he writes the letter, that he has been through times when he was dependent, reliant upon other people for money. He has been flat broke, and in the back of his mind, he has been wondering if this whole ministry of reaching out to people in the name of Christ will completely fall apart, if the people of Philippi will abandon him, if this will all have been for naught. But even in the midst of that, he says, he has learned to be content. There are other places, even places in the book of Philippians that we have read this month, where we read about Paul's discontent when he says, I press on towards the goal, the upward call. Sometimes he is so discontent, so frustrated, so pushy, because he believes in the cause. But sometimes, like today, he says, I have learned to be content. I have found the peace that passes all understanding. He thinks of his friends in Philippi, and he knows they too must be worried, must be wrestling, and he assures them that they too can learn to be content. I love how Paul puts it, I've had plenty and I've had little, and either way, I can be content. When I meet with a couple to plan their wedding, I give them the option of selecting their vows. Usually I say to them, here's vows A and B. Which one do you like? If you don't like either one, we'll, we'll look for some others. Vow A says something like this. I take you to be my wedded for richer, for poor. Vow B says, I promise to love you in plenty and in want. I love it when they choose that second version. Plenty is not so much about an amount as it is a perception. This couple that I'm working with, they might have a combined annual income of a million dollars and think, we don't have enough. We need to earn two million. That may feel like want to them. Or I might be worth working with a couple whose combined annual income is $100,000, and they smile and giggle and laugh and say to one another, we have more than enough. We have plenty. I have some friends in Kansas City. They tell me that they love to drive past their old apartment here in Kansas City, the place that they lived when they were still students. They remember that when they lived in that place, they couldn't really afford to go out to eat unless they put it on a credit card. They had so much student debt. They were cash poor, no assets, living in a tiny rundown apartment. And yet they will say when they drive by, remember when we lived there? We were so happy. How many of you have watched 
Ted Lasso. So unflappable, isn't he? If you haven't seen it, Coach Lasso flies to England to coach a professional British soccer team, but his only coaching experience is with American football here in Wichita, Kansas, a very different game. The Ted Lasso series has become hugely popular, in part, I think, because the character of Ted is so compelling. He's such an admirable human being, because no matter what happens, if his team is losing, if his players are quarreling with one another, taunting one another, if the front office politics of the soccer club has gotten all, gone off the rails, even though he's estranged from his wife and across the pond from his child, Ted Lasso exhibits this contentment. Oh, he, he's working on his life. I mean, he's even in the episode going to therapy and sharing and striving and struggling. But there's this overarching sense that he is unflappable, that he is content. In the last 20 years or so, maybe longer, happiness has become a big subject for social scientists. Around the globe and here in our country, many have done studies about what makes human beings happy or content. I, I, I just opened up Amazon and typed in books on happiness and I got 60,000 choices. One of my favorites is a theological book written by a cutting-edge theologian of our time called God and the Heart and the Art of Happiness. We're wondering, what is it that makes us satisfied? What makes us content? What fills us with a bit of happiness or even joy? Well, many of these studies by the social scientists have reinforced Paul's notion that having more money doesn't really result in more happiness or contentment. Oh, now, lifting people up out of poverty, that does result in happiness. But once we reach a certain level in our income, study after study has discovered that a little bit more money after that doesn't change our happiness quotient. A professor at the University of Pennsylvania studied 30,000 adults examining their relationship between money and happiness, and that study found that there is a law of diminishing returns on money and happiness. He said you need to keep doubling your money in order to find happiness rooted in your finances. And at the same time, a, a similar study was done by Harvard Business School. They examined thousands of millionaires, and they found that for these millionaires, increasing their net worth by another million or two did not increase their happiness quotient until they reached eight million. That seemed to be the tipping point where their happiness was actually boosted, but it was only boosted roughly half as much as their happiness was boosted if they got married. So it'd be cheaper to just get married. A recent British study showed that while money doesn't make people happier, there are some measurable activities that do boost our happiness. One, romantic activity with your partner. That's the G version. Exercise, gardening, 
being in a beautiful place in nature, the most popular course ever taught in the history, the 300 and something year history of Yale University was a course on happiness. And in the class, the students learn about a study done with 362 Americans. Each one was given $5. And they were asked, what do you think would make you happier if we said you could keep the $5 or that you had to spend it on buying something for someone else? And most people predicted that keeping the money would make them happier. But then they told them, you have to spend the money on someone else. So they went out and did that, and they reported higher levels of happiness once they spent it on someone else. As we hear all this news about happiness, we also read a lot of news about depression, about suicide being on the rise. Discontent seems to be a pandemic, or at least a national disease. A book called The Weariness of the Self suggests that the problem of depression in our time is not an individual problem, but a cultural phenomenon. Every single one of us knows someone who is excelling more than we are. I got a 98 on the test. She got a 100 on the test. I got into all of my top five college choices my best friend got into all of her top choices, but she got scholarships at both Stanford and Harvard. Well, they have a bigger house. They have more friends. She has a better marriage. The book calls this phenomenon the tragedy of inadequacy. Depression, then, is the feeling, they say, that we have failed because we don't measure up to those around us. We try to take more initiatives so that we can excel, but we inevitably run out of gas. The book says the depressed individual caught in a moment with no tomorrow is left without drive, bogged down in a nothing is possible mindset. Paul writes from a prison cell where it should have looked like nothing is possible. But instead, Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Where does Paul get the gall to be content? I think it was through Paul's own lived experience. Paul had been a faithful Jewish man, even one who persecuted Christians. When he was on the road one day, he was seized by a bright light. He fell down in the dirt and he experienced the overwhelmingness of God's nearness, of God's presence, of God's embrace. On that day, he was transformed and became a new person, one devoted to the life and teachings of Jesus. This was all through no effort on his own, but God came to him, took up residence in his heart, and gave Paul eyes to see the world anew. That is why Paul can boldly write to us today and to the Philippians saying, God is near. Paul can write to them saying, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds because Paul has sensed this reality in his own life. If God's grace if God's love has come to life in one like Paul, Paul is sure 
that it can come to life in all of us. Through the presence of the living Christ, Paul learns contentment. Many of you, I know, listen to or read the daily meditations by Father Richard Rohr. I love what Richard Rohr says in several of his books about what it means to be a mature Christian. He says that once we are mature Christians, our concern is no longer to have what you love, but to love what you have. And that's exactly where Paul is. All of us have known a moment like that. I have had two life-threatening illnesses in my life. And in both of those difficult moments, I have known beyond a shadow of a doubt more clearly than ever, God is near. Many of you have told me similar experiences you have had. Sometimes we know God is near because of the people in our lives, even strangers. Professor Keltner, who runs the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California, tells about a study he conducted. He gathered up a group of disparate folks. Some were really poor children. Others were military veterans. And at the beginning of the day, he measured their stress hormones, their cortisol levels, and some of them were very stressed, some of them were barely stressed, and some of us had very some of them had varying stress levels in between. And then he sent them all out on a rafting trip. And at the end of the day, they measured their cortisol levels again, and they had synced up the whole group physiologically. They were all at the same high place. They had decrease their stress and come together in harmony with one another. If this kind of physical sinking up can happen between human beings, how much more can our lives be transformed by the presence of a God who comes near? Once we have become aware of God's peace in our lives, Paul says, we are new people, people who find ourselves learning to be content. Paul sensed that that kind of presence of God sometimes comes from the community. And so he writes to those people in Philippi, I am grateful that you have shared with me in my distress. And I suspect that this morning in Turkey and in Syria, amidst the horrific pain and rubble, there are people who are looking out across the rubble and saying to the rescue workers, you have shared in my distress through your face. The presence of God has come near. God, you see, comes near to wherever God's people are. God's peace is everywhere. And that God's people find themselves, God's love and compassion and presence knows no boundaries. The line from the text says, God guards our hearts, which can also be translated that God stands like a sentry watching. No place is exempt from the nearness of God. And so it is up to us to resolve to open our lives up to the presence of God's nearness by connecting to the God who is always within us 
and all around us. The task that you and I face at the beginning of this new year, the task is to pay attention to the nearness of God. What are our spiritual resolutions? I'll close with this. Do you remember that novel that was made into a movie called The Secret Life of Bees? It was written by Sue Monk Kidd. It's about a 14-year-old runaway girl who was taken in by three older, stronger, mature women who are beekeepers. These beekeeping sisters are named for the warm months of the year, August, May, June, and they teach this runaway 14-year-old girl about life and how to get along, but also the deeper spiritual truths. I loved this novel, and I love the author, Sue Monk Kidd, because she has also written a number of nonfiction books about her own spiritual journey, a very powerful journey. But I had forgotten this one scene in the novel until my colleague, Tom R., reminded me of it in his recent book on the topic of joy. In this one scene, the 14-year-old runaway girl named Lily is asking one of the mature women of the household, one of the beekeepers named August, why is it that you painted your house pink, but your favorite color is blue? Well, says August, that was May's doing. She was with me the day I went to the paint store to pick out the color. I had a nice tan color in mine, but May latched onto this sample called Caribbean Pink. She said it made her feel like dancing the Spanish flamenco. And I thought, well, that's the tackiest color I have ever seen. But if it can lift May's heart like that, I guess she ought to live inside of it. Lily says, well, all this time I thought you liked pink. August laughs again. You know, some things do not matter that much, Lily. Like the color of a house. How big is that in the overall scheme of life? But lifting a person's heart, now that matters. The whole problem with people is, and Lily interrupts, they don't know what matters and what doesn't. No, said the older woman. I was going to say, the problem is, they know what matters, and they don't choose it. Do you know how hard that is, Lily? I love May, but it was so hard to choose Caribbean pink. The hardest thing on earth is choosing what matters.